Father, thank you for this dear friend, my brother in Christ, who I love dearly. Thank you for, again, the, the work that you're doing in and through him of what you will do today. Father, this body comes with many needs. Some of us are just so enthused about the season. Others of us are living pretty disconnected lives. We're overwhelmed, not by you, Christ, but by the demands of the season, the busyness of the season, or perhaps we're just living in a way that's ignoring your holiness and righteousness. We're trying to fix ourselves. We are trying so hard to be what, what we really can't be apart from you. And some of us, Lord, are coming with tremendous shame, and we need to cast that upon you. Would you use the words from the Gospel of Luke and your servant, Brian, this morning to transform every life, that we would be made different because of what we see and what we hear. Enable us, Holy Spirit, to think correctly, to feel correctly, and then to act in accordance with this glorious word that we might see you change us and the world around us. For your glory's sake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is so good uh, to be with all of you today and, and just to, to see and hear what God is doing in and through you. Uh, when I think about churches that, uh, that are living out and not just talking about their mission, laser focused on Jesus, reaching new people with his good news, you guys are one of those churches and it is such a gift to be able to worship with you, especially during Advent, so thank you, Mark, for the invitation. As I've been getting ready for this Sunday, uh, a lot of memories have just been swirling around because this was one of the first churches I ever attended after giving my life to Jesus. I would sit somewhere in the back of this section in the sanctuary because I thought that, I don't know, they sat you by spiritual maturity in the sanctuary. And I remember listening to Skip Ryan and to the other pastors and um, just fascinated by how they opened up the text and then singing these, these hymns that, that I didn't know any of the words to because I was brand, brand new to the church, but, but it, it, it struck me and I remember these times of worship that didn't feel manufactured or like you were just going through the motions. It was powerful and, and, and you as a church, you sang loudly like you were actually singing to God. Something else I've learned from you from this church is how to love God with all your mind, giving your very best to the study of scripture, living under its authority, and that has shaped me to this day. So with that, why don't we stand and I'll read our passage from Luke chapter two. Let's stand together. This is Luke two, we'll start with verse four. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Please be seated. There's so much that makes this the most wonderful time of year, at least for me. This is my favorite season in the life of the church. Uh, to quote the great theologian Ricky Bobby from Talladega Nights, <laughs> I like Christmas Jesus best, eight pounds, six ounce, infant baby Jesus in his golden fleece diapers, tiny little balled up fists, so cuddly, yet so omnipotent. 
I love this time of year, uh, maybe because for mom and my family, uh, mom always did Christmas over the top. Some of you, I'm sure, have had parents like that. Uh, decorations to the nines, gifts, you know, gift giving everywhere, Mannheim Steamrollers Christmas album playing well before Thanksgiving, eggnog before that. But there was one thing that mom may have loved more than anything else about the holidays. It was a green and white sequin, uh, green and white shoulder padded, mothball scented cashmere sweater with this shiny uh, sequined Christmas tree scene all the way across the front. And so a few years ago, I was preaching during Advent and I told a story about my mom's tacky Christmas sweater, which today is all the rage at you know, Christmas parties this time of year. And I thought it was kind of funny. Until after the service, a lady came up to me in the church, her name was Barb, and she was sporting this green and red sequin-covered, detachable fur-collar Christmas sweater. And she asked me the question, she said, Pastor, do you think this is tacky? <laughs> now, how do you respond to that question, right? I'm in church, it's the house of God, and I'm a pa I can't lie. So I said, I don't, it's not that it's tacky, it's just expressive. Well, I kid you not, true story, the next Sunday, Barb shows up at church with this gift wrap box. She had wrapped up that very sweater as a gift for my wife, Allie. And it's the gift that keeps on giving every tacky Christmas sweater party since. But there's all this stuff that we get, you know, sentimental about, from family traditions to the same Christmas movies that we watch on the same night every year. It used to be Christmas Vacation, now it's Elf. But one of the main things that, that we get kind of sappy about with the holidays is the music, and amazing music today. And as a church, you've been looking at some of the most beloved of these carols, these songs that, that help us to prepare for King Jesus. You're calling it King's Carols. And I just want to say, to be able to sing these carols with you this morning, and, and with the Gettys, and all these musicians leading worship, this is such a gift. You are the best sounding Presbyterians that I have ever heard in the city limits of Dallas. I just beautiful, beautiful singing. <laughs> but I was thinking about this, right? It, it's actually kind of a rare thing in our day for people to come together and to sing. There are a few exceptions in our culture, like the seventh inning of a baseball game or New Year's Eve, that song that nobody can spell. But for the most part, people, we don't really sing together. And yet here we are in a place where, where every time we gather, it, this is what we do. We sing. It is such a part of who we are that it would be really weird if we didn't sing. I mean, can you imagine showing up this morning and Mark Davis was like, guys, I'm just not feeling the music today. I'm just going to preach for an hour and you can go home, right? That would not be okay. And see, what, what, when we open up the scriptures, <laughs> would you stop doing that? I'm trying to preach here. And see, when we open up the scriptures, what we find is that God's people for thousands of years have been a singing people. First song in the Bible, and there's about, a, if you look through the scriptures, there's 185 songs, give or take. First song in the Bible is the song of Moses and Miriam. David, King David has the most songs. You've been looking at some of those as a church. King Solomon had a song that Kids shouldn't read till they get older. Mary, the mother of Jesus, she had a magnificent song. Even the Apostle Paul sang a song while he was in jail. God's people are this, they're a singing people. It's like there's something down deep inside our souls that, that connects us with God when we sing. Researchers even point out that, that, that the power of singing to release endorphins that lower stress and make us happier and, and more creative. In other words, not singing makes us grumpier and dumber. William James, famous psychologist, once said, I don't sing because I'm happy. I'm happy because I sing. 
And that is certainly true this time of year. So for just a few minutes, I want to look together at, at what is one of the most loved of all of these songs. It goes back exactly 200 years. Uh, it was 1818 in a small town in the Austrian Alps. And a young priest named Joseph Moore, who was serving this little village church, his music director was a, was a guy named Franz Gruber, and as they were rehearsing for the midnight mass on Christmas Eve, right in the middle of the rehearsal, the church organ broke. And so they kind of looked at each other, like, what do we do now? Well, Joseph Moore, who was 26 at the time, he said to his, he said to his music director, you know, I, I, I've written this, this little song, it doesn't even have, have music to it yet, but these are the words. And so he gave it to Franz Gruber, and, and the music director went off into his study, and he put music to it. So that later that night, as they gathered for the midnight mass with nothing more than, than a guitar, they played this song and they invited the whole church to sing along. I mean, can you imagine hearing Silent Night for the first time ever? Some people in the church probably liked it. Some didn't really care for it. Some maybe thought it was too slow. Some were just mad that a guitar was played in the church. And I know that's hard to imagine people getting bent out of shape over something like that, but there was once, there was once a time but over the years, over the years, this simple song would become throughout the world the most beloved of all. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. You know, so many of the songs that we sing this time of year, they're loud and big and joyful and angels we have heard on high, which Mark preached an amazing sermon on last, last week. When you sit, your, your heart rate goes up, the music shakes the walls, and we need that energy, that passion to celebrate an historical event that would forever change history. And yet at the same time, there's something about the stillness, the profound quietness of these words. All is calm, all is bright. And we need that too, don't we? Even if, especially if so much of our life is not calm and not bright. The other day we took our kids driving around this neighborhood to look at all the Christmas lights on steroids and um, it's amazing what you'll see. We found one house that has Santa Claus on a rocket ship, which is a slightly confusing anachronism for our five-year-olds. But every once in a while, we'd come across a good old-fashioned nativity scene. And you know, it kind of got me thinking how most of the time when, when we see the manger and we see Mary and Joseph and, and, and the sweet animals, and it's like it's all serene and, and blissful. It's like Kenny G should be playing in the background of the manger scene. But the truth is, and we know this, there was nothing calm about that first silent night. Starting with Mary and Joseph, who were engaged to be married, and all the excitement, the joy that comes with that. But before their wedding, Mary was found to be pregnant. Now, to be unmarried and pregnant in that culture, just think small town, ultra conservative, it was like this, this mark of shame that would haunt you for the rest of your life. Joseph would lose his job, his reputation. People wouldn't do business with him anymore. Their son would grow up in the swirl of gossip and as the punchline of jokes. Then on top of that, there's just the stress of actually being pregnant. Right? Nobody had invented the body pillow yet. It was hard to be pregnant in the first century. As if that wasn't enough, to top it all off, Mary finds out that she's got to make this road trip with Joseph 80 miles to Bethlehem on the back of a donkey in her third trimester, and when they get there, she goes into labor. Now, if you have ever been in that room when a baby's born, and I know that Mark alluded to this last week, calm is not the operative word, is it? Last August, when our daughter was born, I had the, the opportunity, the privilege, the blessing to be in that room, and... and 
I will never forget, among other things, how, how one person in our marriage could be so poised and resilient and, and, and just positive and strong. And then there was me. And the doctor had to keep checking on me, like, take some deep breaths, Dad. We don't want to lose you, Dad. And then Call Your Jane was born. And she cried and cried and cried, and they did their tests, and they poked her, and they prodded her, and Daddy's panicked. Is she going to be okay? And then after a while, they wrapped her up, and they put her on her mom's chest. And it's like suddenly everything that was chaotic and anxious and scary, all of a sudden, it just got calm, and this tired, tuckered-out baby goes to sleep. And maybe that is what's captured so well by this song. It's the moment when a newborn child gets quiet. And, and what does a mom do often in that very moment? She sings a lullaby. And that's what we have with Silent Night. It's a lullaby. It's what we sing over a child. Holy infant, so tender and mild, sleep in heavenly peace. A lot of us can still remember the lullabies that were sung over us um, and you know, now I get to do that with my children. That's one of the greatest gifts of parenting. Every night we have this sacred routine. It's the same routine. We tuck them in and we sing and then we pray. And you know, sometimes you wonder, like, is any of this connecting with our kids? Parents get worried about this. Well, um, last fall, right after Call Your Jane, our daughter was born. She was probably barely a week old. And here we are in the kids' room and we're singing this lullaby over our four-year-old twins. And then it comes time to pray. And my son Wheeler says, Daddy, can we pray for mommy to have another baby? And I said, does anyone else have a prayer request? Anything but that. <laughs> another fascinating piece of background. When Jesus was born, there was, a, there was a sacred Jewish custom in the first century, in that day, that whenever a child was born and the child was safe, which, as you know, having a baby was a, was a dangerous thing, as it still is in much of our world today, but if the baby and the mom were okay, and key point, if the baby was the right gender, then they would sing a song over that child. Anybody want to guess in that culture what the right gender was? If the child was a boy... They would gather musicians and friends and relatives and they would, they would all sing over that child unless it was a little girl and then the musicians would go home and friends and family, they wouldn't sing. You see, part of what Jesus came into this world to do is to redeem the way that we value and look at women and little baby girls. Jesus and the movement he launched in his name, it would forever change the world for women. But you have to understand that, that, that Jesus, because his parents had traveled to Bethlehem, they were a long way from home, and so there were no relatives, there were no friends that they could call on, no musicians that they knew that, that, that would gather all of a sudden to sing over this child. And so what happens instead? Right, we're told, this is in Luke chapter 2, the text that you looked at last week, we're told there were shepherds out in the fields, and, and so God sends an angel to the shepherds and, and, and says, a baby boy has been born, a savior. And so they went and they found this child. And so now there's a crowd. Now, now there's someone who can sing over the child. And it's like a shepherd choir. And we're told that even the angels joined in as they were singing over this newborn child. Heavenly host, sing hallelujah. Now most of the time, at least for me, you know, we've grown up thinking, what a sweet thing that these shepherds would gather around, around Jesus. And, and we're so thankful that they were on the scene because now we get to dress our kids up like shepherds. And, and it's so cute and it's a beautiful Christmas pageant scene. But in the first century, to be a shepherd meant, meant that you were poor and marginalized. From the world's perspective, shepherds were not cute. They were nobodies, left outs. 
Little detail in the text, we're told by the gospel writer Luke that that they were keeping watch over their flocks at night. These were the night shift shepherds. They didn't even qualify for the day shift. From a spiritual perspective, shepherds were considered unclean because of the work they did. And, And so because of that, they weren't even welcome in the doors of the temple. So just think about this. Of all the people in the world that God chose to sing over his son, to welcome his son into this world, he chose people who couldn't even go to church. The first people who came to Jesus were people who weren't allowed in church. On that first Christmas night, God came to people who were forbidden from coming to him. He comes to nobodies and left outs to show this world that nobody's left out. That's the good news of Christmas. God comes to people who do not deserve, who do not measure up. He comes to the weak and the anxious, to those who are afraid, to people who don't think they belong or they've gone too far or they've sinned too much or they've made too many bad decisions in life. In the Gospel of Matthew, the, the Christmas story really begins with this picture of the family tree, the genealogy of Jesus. You remember those boring begats from Sunday school and they just read over and over again? Well, if you look at this family uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, it's like a who's who in dysfunction and generational sin. It, it's like Matthew is making it so clear. He's announcing that, that this is the messed up family through which God chose to enter this world. And you know, that should be good news to those of you, to those of us who think that our family is kind of high on the dysfunction scale. Now, it may be that you know, everyone in your family is, is just easy to love, Everyone is emotionally well-adjusted and relationally attentive and actively listening and never given to obsessive tendencies, all behaviors reflecting mature self-awareness. Or you may have a real family. Uh, Sometimes in our church, we talk about EGR people, extra grace required people. And you know, uh, churches are like families, like most families, most families have at least one EGR person. And so if you can't think of a single person in your family that's extra grace required, well, it's probably because it's you. (laughs) In Christmas, God comes to flawed, imperfect, messed up, extra grace required people like me. Jesus draws near to us, even when we don't think we have what it takes, even when we don't think we're worthy to draw near to him. And I wonder if that's why this story, this, this Christmas story, seems to draw so many people in, right? Even those who often think they're far from God or they've outrun the grace or love of God. It's like those who otherwise tend to be doubtful or skeptics when it comes to faith. There's something about this infinite, powerful God wrapping himself in infinite vulnerability, a God who came into this world through a problem pregnancy and a teenage girl who was born in a barn, not a palace, which means he is willing to enter the broken places of life to give himself to us. When I was a senior in college, I I came home for the holiday break. My dad lived up here in Dallas, down the road from here, and my mom lived down in Houston, and this was the year that I was gonna go and spend Christmas with mom. Over the course of the year, mom had gotten pretty sick. She was in and out of the hospital, trips to the emergency room, and and because of that, she had lost her job. and my stepdad had just left her, and, and so she was all alone with this stack, this growing stack of unpaid bills, an unemployment check that barely covered rent. That Christmas, there weren't the decorations that she normally got carried away with. There was just this one little fake tree that she bought at CVS. There weren't any gifts, not that it mattered, but it was just so different. 
Growing up, mom was the life of the party. I mean, she was always an outgoing person. She could walk in a room and light everything up with her smile and her laugh. She spent most of her life working at department stores like Neiman Marcus, where, where she'd help women find the most beautiful, most expensive clothes their taste could afford. But over time, all that began to change because her little secret, a secret that hardly anyone knew about, was an addiction and the result of a, a battle with chronic pain. After a while, things got pretty dark. The pills took their toll. Her body started to change. Her mind began to slow. Her, her sense of humor, it gave way to sadness and, and gloominess. She cried all the time. Mom didn't talk much about God. It's not that she was against the idea of it, of faith. It, I just don't think she felt like she belonged. But then one day something happened, a conversation, a friend who reached out to her, who invited her to church. It was a new thing for her, and, and eventually through those relationships, through those friendships, she found a home in the church choir, in this local Presbyterian church. Some people call them the Presbyterians, which is a goofy name, but it was, it was an amazing community. As mom's health got worse, when she could no longer drive, someone from the choir, they would come and they would pick her up and they would take her to the one place where she was loved and accepted, broken as she was. And it seemed like such a small thing, but she would tell me this all the time, that like every Sunday, all the women in the choir, they would tell her, Debbie, you look gorgeous today. And it struck me how she spent her life trying to make other people beautiful, and now here she was, just barely holding on, surrounded by people who were calling out her beauty. She was far more beautiful in her brokenness than she ever was in her strength. There were times when mom was too sick to leave her apartment and it was members of that church, members of that choir, who would often come over and they'd visit and they'd bring her food. In fact, on this particular Christmas Eve, it was now just the two of us, and we feasted on a honey-baked ham that some friends from church had, had delivered. Later that night, we went to the Christmas Eve service at this Presbyterian church. This was still very new to us. During the service, after the preacher had finished speaking, the, the lights all kind of went down in the sanctuary and... You know, for much of that service, my mom could barely stay awake. That is until we lit the candles. Like having a live flame does something to keep you focused. But then we sang those words. Silent night, holy night, all is calm. And, and there were lots of tears. And then came that moment. I'm not sure if you do that in this church, but, but it's like in the last verse, everyone just knew to lift their candles up high and and it's like this darkened sanctuary all of a sudden was lit up and, and I could see my mom and, and, and she could see me. And even in the darkness, even in the pain and the sadness of what I didn't know was going to be our last Christmas together, it's like there was this little moment where we both knew this light had come for us. Jesus came for us, unearned, undeserved. He just comes as a gift. By the way, every other religion says, here's how you can come to God. What Christmas announces is that God has come to you. That's the gift of Jesus. It's a gift of unconditional love, undeserved forgiveness, of guidance and friendship and freedom and joy. Maybe it's a gift you've not yet received. Maybe it's something that you've thought and wrestled a, a lot about and, and you still have tons of questions. Maybe because of, of suffering or a loss or some injustice that, you, that you've seen in the world and, and because of that, it's hard for you to somehow imagine a God of love would allow that to happen and I get that and God is big enough to handle those kind of questions and doubts. But here's what I do know. 
that as a matter of history, the one that was born, the one they called Jesus, the one who was surrounded by shepherds, Jesus knows something about suffering. He was born not just in the dark of night, but in the darkness of poverty and family shame and racial injustice, and he lived a perfect life and died a painful death on that cross, and he did it out of love for you. He did that for you. And so Jesus, we thank you that you chose to come down the dawn of redeeming grace. We thank you that you're rescuing this, this world from, from darkness and evil and, and even death itself. And, and we pray today, Father, that your light would break through whatever darkness we might be facing. Would your light break through and bring hope and bring hope because Christ the Savior is born. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And as a church, everybody said together,